I think our conversations in Canada um, for a long time in con law, you know, where there weren't even really big debates about constitutional methodology, right? Like it's kind of amazing. It was living tree, that's it. No one thought about it for a long time. Welcome back to Runny Mead Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. In today's episode of the podcast, I sit down with Jeffrey Siglet, assistant professor in the Department of Economics, Philosophy, and Political Science at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, and the director of the UBC Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies. We talk about the state of intellectual diversity in the Canadian Legal Academy, the relationship between law and political science, and the importance of resisting an absolutized constitutional culture. Jeff, welcome back to Runnymede Radio. It's great to be here again. So it's been almost three years since you were last on the podcast. Um, you've spoken at numerous Runnymede events uh, during that time, but for, for the sake of our listeners who may not uh, know, why don't you tell them what you've been up to over the past, it's been about two and a half years since you were last on. Well, I think the last thing, the last time I was on here was right before COVID. I was definitely at the last uh, big Runnymede conference in Toronto people were talking about this thing called COVID in China. And at that point, it was just in China. And, uh, oh my gosh, a lot has happened since then, eh? And uh, so... It, it was like uh, two weeks after the, the 2020 conference. We, we just yeah. it in. Yeah, no, exactly. So that was, it was, a, that was the, that was right before the storm really hit. And I was locked in a tiny apartment in Montreal as a postdoc with my wife and, uh, <laughs> Wondering, uh, wondering when, when I'd be able to go outside again, right? Um, so, uh, wondering if my wife would kill me, you know, like it was, it was a, it was like a tiny bachelor pad that we were in, um, and, um, and so a lot's happened since then. I was a postdoc uh, at McGill at that point, and have since then gotten a tenure track job as an assistant professor in uh, at UBC Okanagan here in Kelowna. And uh, and I've already spent a year as a pro- professor here in Kelowna. It's been wonderful. And um, and uh, I've also founded a the UBC Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies, which is a really exciting new center we have. Um, yeah, tell us uh, more about that. Yeah, it's it's a center that's meant to unite people uh, at the UBC Okanagan campus, the Vancouver campus, the Allard School of Law. Who work on issues in, related to constitutionalism, the rule of law, separation of powers, and the philosophy of law, and stuff like that, and um, and just to connect faculty in those campuses, but also across Canada and the U.S. and U.K. and and New Zealand, um, and so we're really and, and Australia, um, so we're really excited about that. And overall, our and our first event will be in just a few weeks. Here, I'm kind of organizing lots of things um, and playing the role of an administrator, partly. Uh, we're going to host Justice Cote from the Supreme Court of Canada on September, on September 8th. And she's going to talk about landmark cases in the charters, uh, juris- in, the, in the history of charter jurisprudence. Um, and um, and you can re- register for that event if you go to our website. Uh, if you go to ccl.ubc.ca, I believe. Um, I should be reading that, but I'm not. I'm just telling you it off the top of my head. If you search UBC Center for Constitutional Law, you'll be able to pull up the website in the event. Um, well, we'll be sure and- to, uh, to include a link to this uh, in the podcast description and uh, in any tweets that we put out for this episode. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. 
And uh, and so that's what I've been up to since COVID, I guess. Uh, besides lots of so lots of moving and lots of uh, and and trying to do some research on the, uh, as much research as I can in that uh, in the context of all of these big changes. Well, it sounds like you've been certainly very productive. Um, you know, obviously this this new center is is very exciting, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the process of of putting together a center like this. I'm just going through your. Uh, list of, of research and center associates right now, and you've got a really uh, stellar list of individuals involved, many of whom have participated in running meet events, uh, Charisma Mathen, Richard Albert, uh, Hoi Kong, Brian Bird, Ryan Alford, Asher Honickman, Joanna Baronitz, and, and many, many others. So, you know, how does your singer as well, I believe is in there too. He may or may not be, he may or may not be, but um, <laughs> But when you're, you know, how do you go about um, kind of assembling a list for this? Because one of the things that I'm really struck by when I go through this list and what impresses me so much is that it's a really uh, intellectually diverse slate of candidates. And, you know, I, I can easily see for the events for this center that there's going to be really robust uh, dialogue and maybe even debate that comes out of it. Yeah, well, that's exactly my hope. And my my my, I'm a strong supporter of Runnymede, and I believe in the Runnymede mission of promoting uh, diverse viewpoints on at Canadian law schools and uh, and in the Canadian Academy more generally. Um, and I want the center to do that. I want the center to continue a mandate that's that's uh, promoting intellectual diversity and ideological diversity. And that includes Marxists. That includes uh, fem like critical feminists. That includes conservatives, and it includes libertarians. And that, and I want. I think our conversations in Canada um, for a long time in con law, you know, where there weren't even really big debates about constitutional methodology, right? Like it's kind of amazing. It was Living Tree. That's it. No one thought about it for a long time. And no, one, no, it's not that no one thought about it. It's that the hard questions weren't asked about it, in the sense that. Proponents of living tree constitutionalism were often vague about whether or not living tree constitutionalism was more about the morality of judges in a Dworkinian way, or whether it was about the social fact of changing norms in society. There's a huge difference in, in how you might approach a living tree approach to constitutional interpretation. Well, it kind of methodological complacency existed for a long time, even though people all assumed that Canadian interpretation was this living tree thing, right? And now we have really interesting conversations where I think living tree theorists are more interesting. There's originalist questions about constitutionalism in Canada now. There's original. There's there's arguments that there's originalist elements in our federalist jurisprudence, and even in the BC Motor Vehicles Act. Um, Leonard Sirota and Ben Oliphant have written about. I was, I was just going to say they, they wrote a whole uh, paper on this. Yeah, it's a great paper, and it's and it shows it's really and it's really provocative and interesting for 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 people on all sides of that debate with different commitments, right? Um, and what we want is more of that. We want more conversations like that where we really where everyone um, feels included and um, and 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 uh, diversity becomes an intellectual strength and not just an empty slogan, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and certainly, you know, when we think about kind of the, the mission of the academy, right, and we think about, you know, what the heart of scholarship is, is supposed to be, there needs to be a willingness there to, uh, to question received wisdom on, on certain issues. And, and as you say, uh, constitutional interpretation seems to be one of those things where there, uh, 
there, there's more or less been sort of a received wisdom on it that that hasn't been interrogated. And so uh, perhaps the um, the scholarship and, and, and the, the discourse that we've seen on it has at times uh, not been as robust as it could have been. But over the last few years, and, and I think we're we're seeing this to an extent in, in recent cases that have come out of the Supreme Court, thinking particularly about cases like uh, the city of Toronto ruling, you know, where the you have the majority and the minority with very different visions about how unwritten principles uh, apply within constitutional interpretation. Uh, these are issues that are now coming back to the fore. And it's, it's kind of exciting to see this uh, happening and to see these uh, new perspectives um, that are being brought to bear on it. You know, one of these um, we had a we had a panel obviously on this issue at the 2022 Runnymede Conference on emerging alternatives and legal interpretation. And so, you know, we had Asher Honickman there, kind of articulating the textualist uh, position. Kerry Frock from UNB articulating um, a feminist originalist position, and then Kerry Sun and Xavier Menyard, who were talking about. Um, the classical legal tradition and and this idea of, of common good constitutionalism. Have, have you been following that debate at all? Do you have any preliminary thoughts that you'd be willing to share with us on it? Oh gosh, now you're putting me on the spot. I think that's a great debate. And I think that I, I really enjoy how that debate engages questions of fundamental questions of philosophy of law. I know some people get upset about, about it and think it's some kind of, you know, dead, it's people, People who are who get too upset about the debate are not um, seeing the value of questioning, of looking down to the basic fundamental first principles, and, and the way it points us that way, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and both sides have points to make. I'm not going to take a side here, uh, <laughs> but I do think that um, I think that uh, the extent to which, let's say, uh, there is an element. There are positivist presum pres uh, presumptions in a textualist or originalist point of view about constitutional interpretation. Um, the extent to which those require a philosophical grounding and, and justification, um, well, the natural law, common good questioning of those of those assumptions, is itself very fruitful as a debate for all sides, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that is the that is the the, the core intellectual um, contribution of the debate is to force us to really rethink these first principles. Mm -hmm. And so originalists can't just say, "Well, it's just positive law," and that's it. Originalists need a normative story about the relevance of positive law, but natural lawyers also need to tell a story and need to explain where more, more where morality itself. And the moral nature of law, it, it, on that view, uh, does come separate. Does become a, can come apart from the individual moral commitments of, let's say, a judge, right? And and when those when those principles, the principles of an individual judge, are more or less relevant, and um, and they and there's a story there, right? But it's a very it's a very fruitful conversation and debate, in my view. It's also politically really, I think there's a kind of a uh, politically rich thing going on too, where uh, living constitutionalists have got, had it easy for a long time, where they kind of assumed that, oh, well, if a judge gets in power and it's a living constitutionalist, it's gonna be a progressive judge and they're gonna apply progressive rulings. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you some of my students, I had my students read Adrian Vermeule last year and I'll tell you some of my progressive students were very upset at the idea that living constitutionalism's only answer to him 
I mean, not his only answer, but they, one of the obvious answers to him is, well, um, a judge should just be progressive. And that's the solution to, uh, to the problem of having a right-wing uh, living constitutionalist judge. I mean, the problem with that answer in the view of many of my progressive students, which I think is they're right about this, is that politically, you, all, the, the courts are never going to completely escape politics. Mm -hmm. And and history shows that political science is, I mean, this is a consensus amongst political scientists um, of all stripes, uh, that, that the courts can't completely escape political life and political pressures. You're going to have judges with right of center views in a society that has part elite uh, party comp robust party competition between right and left parties. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're not going to be able to get away with saying, well, that's, that's, that's just bad. We shouldn't have right-wing living constitutionalist judges, living constitutionalists need a story then about what to do when, what, where moral principles are limited in what sense. And, um, and, and honestly, it drove some of my students, my progressive students towards originalism, which I found really fascinating. So let's, um, let's kind of jump off of that point a little bit, talking about um, the consensus among uh, political scientists, because you yourself are a political scientist. And so in some ways, um, it, it's more within your, your natural wheelhouse to think about um, the uh, of judges and courts, um, not just as legal actors, but as political actors. And so thinking about um, the normative and the moral dimensions to issues that come with with legal interpretation and with judge making. So, but at the same time, when, when people look at your CV, when they go through your papers that you've written, I think it's fair to describe your scholarship as in many ways uh, law adjacent, if not in some cases outright into the field of legal scholarship. So in what ways can lawyers and legal scholars and political scientists learn from one another, particularly when we're thinking about these issues uh, like constitutional interpretation and even into the, some of the more uh, nitty gritty issues like the scope and content of rights. Well, okay. So I think that, uh, first of all, this is just an identity crisis for me. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I am a political scientist. I'm trained in political science. I come from that tradition. Um, and, but I also spend a lot of time in law schools and I love talking about law and I love there's, I know, I know this happens. I know there's this point in some conversations where everything gets into doctrine and we start talking about this case, that case and what's going on. And it, and there are conversations like that, that some people's brains turn off of some political scientists don't want to, don't want to listen to it, but maybe I've got something wrong with me, but I love it. Right. Like if we get into that, I can get, I, I, I kind of enjoy it. Um, and, and, um, but I still am at the end of the day, a, a political scientist, and I, my hope is that when I get engaged in taking doctrine and and legal scholarship seriously, which I think we really should, mm -hmm. um, my hope is that I don't get too engaged and forget that I'm a political scientist, and I and we have our own resources and and conceptual frameworks for thinking about things. Um, and I like to remind political scientists that we that that legal scholarship has a lot to offer, and I think most political scientists in Canada read legal scholarship, publish in law journals, mm -hmm. and think about it. Uh, take it pretty seriously. I don't know. I don't know if it's so much the other way around. Unfortunately, I don't think that legal scholars take political science seriously enough. Mm. Um, and legal scholars can get a little arrogant in thinking that they're uh, the answers to question explaining what's actually going on in the law are found within the four corners of judicial cases. Right? Political science. If you want to look outside of that, you need to look outside of that to really understand what's happening in law. 
And political science has a lot to offer in the way of empirically telling you what's actually happening in judicial decisions, the institutional dynamics that help explain how they were, how, how you get certain kinds of decisions, what kind of decisions you should expect. Um, and then the tradition that I'm, and I'm certainly interested in and draw on and try to do empirical work. Uh, but I also draw on another part of the tradition of political science, which intersects somewhat with legal philosophy, which is political theory and thinking theoretically about the moral foundations of, the cons of constitutionalism and the nature of rights, like you said. Um, sort of a, a, a major example of, of a debate, of a way in which political theory thinking and legal philosophy thinking about the nature of rights uh, is hugely important in the Canadian context is debates now about section one and the nature of limitations on rights, right? Mm -hmm. So in a dissent uh, that came out a few years ago uh, now um, in the Frank and Canada case on uh, expat, expatriate disenfranchisement, expatriate voting, mm -hmm. um, the dissent pointed out uh, that the very concept of rights embedded in the way the Oaks test is often applied, where we talk about the justified infringement or non-infringement of, let's say, the right to vote that that way of framing things can really mischaracterize what's actually at stake in the philosophically in the debate about the nature, what let's say the extending the right to vote to expatriates. Mm -hmm. And their point was that extent, not extending the right to vote to people outside of the country is actually kind of part and parcel of the nature of the right to vote in Canada insofar as our right to vote is constituted by and limited in the sense of created by laws establishing the right of Cana individual Canadians to vote in specific constituencies, right? Mm -hmm. The nature of the system includes some a conception of what the right to vote is that's that's really compatible with the idea that people outside the country for long enough can't vote. Um, once you leave your constituency for long enough, maybe. And so maybe on whatever side you come down on that, that outcome, you know, there's a really interesting philosophical debate going on behind it about the nature of the right and legal philosophers like Gregoire Weber and political scientists like uh, Richard Bellamy have a lot to say about thinking about that and then thinking about the institutional dynamics um, uh, as they relate to that different to, to that philosoph different philosophical conceptions of the right. I, I want to come back to this issue of limitations on rights and the scope of rights and, and just have a little bit of a discussion about how that dialogue has evolved during the pandemic. But before I do that, I want to back up a bit and, and just, you know, seize on something interesting that you said about uh, how political scientists do tend to uh, listen to legal scholars, but the same isn't necessarily always true in reverse. And it strikes me that um, of, of the political scientists that I uh, engage with and the scholarship that I read, it often seems like um, political scientists are coming onto the jurist's turf and, and, you know, they're, they're doing these, uh, volumes or collections that are primarily filled with legal scholars and they're kind of like visiting, but it's very rare that you see the same true in reverse where, uh, legal scholars are, are coming into the political scientist territory. So in, in how should, um, aspiring legal scholars, practicing lawyers, jurists, how would you encourage them to approach that task of engaging seriously with the field of political science? 
Well, one thing to do is if you're if you're a young legal scholar and you're organizing an event on what's administrative law or constitutional law, go and look at political science departments in Canada and look at the top ones, or um, or email me and ask me about maybe ask me about it, uh, and and look at all the scholars doing work on issues that are fundamental to to very specific niche areas of legal scholarship but then draw on different resources and bring them to the conference you know so chris manfredi is um kind of uh one of my inspirations in my career is now the provost of mcgill he was uh he, he was a political scientist with training in political theory and, and in empirical political science from claremont who um has written some of the best work on the politics of the charter and its development and uh he told me of uh, 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 i it was uh, I, I can't remember if he told me this in the com conversation we were having or if he mentioned this in a public thing he was talking about but um he mentioned that he thinks that in, in his career he was very rarely if ever invited to a law school to talk and that's amazing to me that's embarrassing for the legal academy that someone like chris manfredi who knows as much about charter politics as much about questions of constitutional interpretation as he does it's not invited to speak at law schools right um he's now he's now the the provost of one of the best universities in canada i mean mm -hmm. the guy's career is unbelievably um impressive and he should have been invited around a lot if if that if he's if he's feeling grieved that aggrieved in any sense that way that's a problem it, it does seem to be an unfortunate um side effect of sometimes the way law schools are set up um and i you know, I'm certainly not going to uh, slam my alma mater here, but I think back when I was at Osgood, just even geographically, the way the law school was kind of on the edge of campus in its own building, we didn't have classes in other buildings and all those things, encourages this sort of insular mindset that doesn't uh, see that kind of cross collaboration with other uh, departments and faculties uh, the way it might otherwise. So, you know, it, it seems like perhaps one uh, good way of taking that first step is for law students to uh, step outside of their law school buildings once in a while and start attending events uh, at other parts of their universities. Yeah, I mean, well, well, like all these things, it just takes it just takes people being open minded, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it takes it just takes a few law professors and few political scientists getting together and having some more coordinated events, and uh, and 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 that's what it'll take to to change that. And that could be very pr productive. And I'll tell you, like my this this uh, UBC Center for Constitutional Law is one of its one of its goals is to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So let's circle back then. I promised that we talk about uh, limitations on rights and the content of rights. And I want to conclude this discussion by thinking about how that dialogue has evolved uh, throughout the pandemic and over the past uh, two and a half years. And we've seen no shortage of dialogue and debate on these issues since the last time you were on the podcast in 2019. And so I'll just simply ask, what do you make of the current state of this dialogue in Canada over the content and scope of rights and freedoms? And do you think that the pandemic has maybe entrenched a more absolutized constitutional culture with regard to these issues? I think uh, politically what's going on is really interesting is that there's now a faction of the right that is very hardcore in supporting the charter and supporting a more aggressive uh absolutist conception of the charter let's mm -hmm. say 
And at the same time, and that's interesting because traditionally the right in Canada has been a little bit more charter skeptic, right? Yes, I was just going to say that, yeah. And um, the charter was seen, has been traditionally been seen and associated with the Liberal Party because it was Pierre Trudeau's baby, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted it. He, it was his dream. And conservative and NDP uh, premiers in the negotiations leading up to 1982 opposed it, right? Mm -hmm. Their preference was no charter. Mm -hmm. there, there was a point in the negotiations where the charter was where where they were proposing agreeing to his amendment formula and various other things he wanted and no chart with no charter. Um, they shaped the way the charter ended up. But conservatism for a long time picked up opposition to the charter opposition associated the charter itself with judicial activism. And what you're seeing now is that there's a there's a even moderate conservatives, I think, have become more pro charter. And accepted the charter as a tool for protecting their rights in a way. Um, and there's a radical core who, especially, especially concerning vaccines, mm -hmm. vaccine issues, uh, who see the charter as their um, a, a potent political symbol and tool for protecting an absolutist conception of rights that they have. On the mm -hmm. other hand, and what's interesting about that is on the other hand, then there's all people insisting that the charter is just consistent with whatever the government wants to do to you in some of these in some of these uh, pandemic contexts, um, which included some pretty aggressive police powers asserted by the quasi criminal powers mm -hmm. asserted by the provinces and emergency laws, right? Which, and, which, and which Ryan Alfred right. just discussed on the last episode of the podcast, yeah. Yeah, which is like, I mean, this is a, some of these, some of the powers asserted are pretty darn aggressive and mm -hmm. they're coming and they're, and they're, and they're being justified by, uh, in many cases, left of center political actors and uh, scholars, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as consistent with the charter, which is really interesting. I mean, so we're in an interesting point, right? Where things are kind of the conversation about the charter is shifting from its, into a new phase. And what I hope can happen is that um, more intellectual methodological debates that are also becoming more diverse can sort of grapple with that and help maybe even um, ameliorate some of the polarization and nastiness that can come with the actual mm -hmm. politics, right? Yeah, it, it struck me, you know, back in January, February, when things were kind of hitting a fever pitch with the Freedom Convoy and, and the um, the individuals who are associated with that movement, that it wasn't just um, a policy debate, that the objection wasn't just vaccine mandates, passports, et cetera, are, um, are bad policy or unjustified policy. It, the argument that many of these individuals were making was that these policies were categorically unjustified. So, you know, again, it, it very, approaching this in a very much absolutized sort of way, uh, instead of looking at it, at it perhaps in a more policy-driven sort of way. And yet the flip side of that, though, is, is the response that we saw um, in some cases from, from members of the legal community uh, to, those, um, to those arguments that were being made that themselves also seem to adopt this sort of absolutized conception, not of the right itself, but of uh, the ability to limit that right. And, and the refrain that we heard you know, fairly frequently was, yes, but Section 1 imposes reasonable limits on all rights, as if that by itself uh, does the heavy work of telling us when a limitation on a right is reasonable and, and how we determine the, the contours and, and the, the scope of that right. Yeah, somehow that conception of rights doesn't uh, justify 
limitations on the state's ability to uh, to kill you at your request, right? Um, so no, exactly. that's that's uh, it's it's amusing. It was amusing to see some people uh, fall back on a kind of uh, all things all things are okay conception of limitations who have also been aggressive on issues like let's say made uh, mm -hmm. medical assisted dying, right? Um, I mean, you know, the big story is like someone someone uh, looking in from the outside must find it fascinating that Section 6 mobility rights protections did very little to prevent the government from putting people in hotels and preventing, we basically had, had almost Australian levels of quarantine rules for a while, right? Mm -hmm. um, the judges didn't consider Section 6 engaged in some of those cases, I believe. The charter doesn't doesn't do much to strike down a lot of these really heavy-handed re regulations about Canadians coming into their own country, mm -hmm. in language that and 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 part of the charter that has some of the most obviously uh, absolutist language. Mm -hmm. You have the right to come into Canada as a citizen and to leave. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, in recent decisions we've had the states the your security a person and your right to life justify a very robust right to have the state terminate your life at your request even against safe and 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 that that right has been used to strike even strike down some safeguards uh concerning like let's say barring people from mental for doing that for purposes of mental illness mm -hmm. you know on the one hand you've an extremely radical i think now very radical expansion of the right to to assisted dying or medically assisted dying or assisted suicide as we used to call it um in a way that was that that pushed the pushed the envelope beyond even some of the proponents of that on the other hand you don't have the charter protecting doing much to protect what seems like a pretty clear right to come into the country with a massive safeguards and being forced to stay in a hotel right um i mean i'm not saying and i'm not taking sides on this one i am definitely a critical of of carter and this and the subsequent assisted dying i'm not a i'm not pro-death you know um but uh on that on that count on that debate but i'm and i'm but i'm not taking sides and saying that that all restrictions on the border are wholly unreasonable or whatever i'm just saying that at first glance, the charter seems to protect, probably the text of the charter seems more protective in the one case rather than the other. And yet we have the politics developed this way. And I love, I mean, academically, I mean, as a political scientist and a legal thinker, I think this is fascinating how we got here. And it's, and it's gonna be really interesting where we go next, um, how things develop. Because the people, there's a lot of people, like you said, who are pissed off about the section six violations and they're not going to go away over the next couple of years. And they mm -hmm. weirdly come from a lot of different. It's actually a fairly interestingly uh, dispersed group. I've heard, I've, I've read some someone saying that the some of the most prominent anti-vax uh, proponents are, were middle-aged women or living in Ontario who voted for Trudeau in the last election. Like I, I, I don't know how true that is. Actually, I, mm -hmm. I want a political scientist to tell me that, and not uh, the pollster I read talking about that. But that's fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and it seems that you know the solution to to this absolutist absolutized culture 
uh, both with regard to the rights themselves and the state's ability to limit it. Uh, seems like it would benefit from more intellectual diversity through work that you're doing, like at the uh, like at the center and that other uh, organizations like Runnymede and, and other centers throughout the country are doing. You know, where we can come together and we can. Uh, listen to one another and we can deal with these difficult issues and, and grapple with them and and disagree in a way that's constructive and respectful. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in the context of what you're talking about, of polarization of people just screaming at each other and not listening to each other. What what could be more important than the than the mandate Runnymede has of encouraging viewpoint diverse debates about these really fundamental polarizing issues? Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't think of it, and that's why I support it so much, and why, and and it's why the center has a similar mandate in the sense of fostering divert viewpoint diverse debates um, at UBC, and hopefully, hopefully, it makes some difference. I mean, I, I, I'm also skeptical about the amount of difference we can a few conversations can make overall, but you never know; it could it could help things. You never know. Well, Jeff, we're obviously very grateful for your ongoing support of Runnymede. Very grateful for having you back on the podcast today to talk a little bit about your recent work, to kind of have a whirlwind discussion about everything that's been going on in this field over the last couple of years. And we look forward to having you back on the podcast before too long. Thanks very much, Chris. I appreciate being here. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.